What that can do is restrain movement variability. It can restrain creativity and it can actually form bad habits that ultimately will intrude upon your natural skill. We have computers that can beat us in chess and in Jeopardy, and we have cars that can drive us around. But have you ever seen a robot try to unscrew a bottle of water? It's not pretty. Hitting a baseball is not a reflex, right? It's a voluntary decision that's initiated by your brain to your muscles. This is The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Today I'm talking with Zach Schoenbrunn, journalist and author of The Performance Cortex, How Neuroscience is Redefining Athletic Genius. He'll be talking today about how the brain, not the body, may be mostly responsible for athleticism, better ways to take advantage of practice and training, and what that can mean for the future of Army training. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Welcome to the show, Zach Schoenbrunn. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Matt. It's great being here. Uh, we're really excited to have you on today because we're trying to, to look at uh, you know, analogies for the military, what's going on outside of the military that can help us think about the way we do things. So why don't you get started telling our audience a little bit about yourself? Because you're not our typical guest. You're not in the defense community. So can you tell us a little bit about you, how you came to write your book, The Performance Cortex, How Neuroscience is Redefining Athletic Genius and, and what you're doing now? Yeah, so uh, I'm a journalist. I'm based in in uh, New Jersey, um, right outside of New York, and and uh, I'm currently the business and technology editor for a magazine called The Week. Um, but before that, for about seven or eight years, really out of college, um, I was a sports writer, and you know I covered uh, everything from the Super Bowl to the Final Four to the full gamut. And uh, you know the book. Uh, was derived from really an article I wrote in, in 2015. Um, I was uh, became aware of um, a couple of neuroscientists at Columbia University named Jason Sherwin and Jordan Moraskin, who were uh, big baseball fans, and they were um, thinking about ways at the time to apply their you know neuroscientific techniques and their expertise. Uh, into understanding the the basic question of how hitters hit a baseball, right? The most the hardest thing to do in sports, right? It's hitting a baseball. So you know what they did, you know, early on was they they took an EEG headset that uh, that monitors brain waves and they uh, devised a little simulation, a very basic simulation of a pitch coming in toward a hitter from the, from the batter's perspective. And they, you know, they put three different pitches on the simulation. I think it was like a fastball slider and a curveball. you know, the pitches were thrown at random and at a speed of about 80, 85 miles an hour, you know, nothing too uh, outrageous, but something that Aaron judge could easily handle, but for, for a novice uh, looked pretty fast. And so they started testing the Columbia baseball team about how, how quickly they were making decisions and accurately they were, they were making decisions on whether to swing or not swing at a pitch if it looked like a strike, right? And so what they found early on in their testing was that the Columbia hitters were much better and more accurate at deciding to swing at the correct pitches 
than novices. Okay. You know, that's like the baseline test that they first did. And that was somewhat interesting. And then when it started to get even more interesting was when they started to test the players amongst themselves and, and started to see differences among their own teammates in, in the accuracy and the consistency of their decision-making. Again, they're using the EEG caps to quantitatively measure when activations in the brain are occurring along the timeline of the pitch. And so they started to see that the hitters on the Columbia baseball team that were performing the best on the field tended to also have the, the uh, faster and more accurate activations uh, along the timeline of these simulated pitches. So it sort of translated, it, it went from the brain activations were sort of given an indication of on-field performance. And so they started thinking, okay, maybe we, there are other teams that we can work with on this as like a scouting and assessment tool. If you can pick out a player that uh, is, is making more accurate and more consistent uh, decisions through these EEG caps, you know, maybe that will be a way of showing, uh, you know, us how he's going to fare on the field beyond just looking at how his swing looks, right. Or how, how athletic he seems. So they started to branch out and started to work with other college teams. When I caught up with them, which was around 2015, 2016, and started writing about them, uh, they were uh, beginning to make some way, some headway into major league baseball and had some consulting agreements with major league baseball teams. And so I wrote the article, you know, it got a lot of, uh, it got a good amount of, of attention. I thought, you know, maybe I could branch it out into a book and follow Jason and Jordan. They, they started their own company called DeServo. And, uh, and I began to follow them as they, as they traveled around the country. And I got to see them working with major league baseball teams. They were, they were assessing the uh, decision-making of minor league hitters, you know, and so I got to see some of that and their various, their, their journey um, trying to make their way as a, as a consultancy in, in professional sports. Um, you know, I think what, what the book then became was a much broader exploration of the brain and skilled movement. You know, what Jason and Jordan were showing uh, essentially was that hitting a baseball involves a decision. Uh, it's a very binary decision, swing or don't swing, yes or no. And that's partly why baseball is easier to study than other sports and other, other activities. You know, it gets more complicated when you're talking about something like a point guard making a decision on a fast break. Do I pass? Do I shoot? Do I dribble here? Do I dribble there? You know, or a quarterback scanning the field. Do I throw here? Do I throw to this guy? Do I, do I try and run? The blitz is coming. You know, so th those things get a little bit more complicated. A, you know, a hitter is, again, baseball is making that very binary decision, swing or don't swing. And, you know, we've always been able to tell when a hitter decides to swing, right? Because he swings, you know, the movement is produced. But what Jason and Jordan were showing was that when the hitter decides not to swing, there's still brain activation that's occurring. It, it, is, a, it is a voluntary decision. It's actually inhibiting that motion, that movement. The brain is primed to move, and the decision not to swing is, is an inhibitory uh, action. But it's cognition. And so, you know, I was always kind of taught or heard growing up that hitting a baseball is just a reflex or it's muscle memory, you know, but both those things are completely inaccurate. Uh, you know, muscles don't have memories, uh, right? So, you know, your brain is doing the work 
And so I think, you know, I went about exploring in the book, I went about exploring other ways in which the brain is involved in, in, you know, highly skilled movement. Um, and that that's from hitting a fastball at 95 miles an hour to, uh, to reaching for your coffee mug, you know, at the end of your desk. Yeah. I find, I find all this super fascinating, especially as we try to translate it into the army, because, you know, the, the army soldiers should be really, you know, peak athletes. Um, but they're making decisions under, you know, an insane time crunch sometimes with life or death consequences. So finding out where we should assign credit, you know, we're looking for soldiers who are simply stronger and faster or look stronger and faster, uh, you know, may not be the right thing. So that's why I think it's so fascinating about your book. And I think, um, you know, the best analogy to illustrate this is from Dr. John Krakauer, who's a, a prominent figure in your book. You know, he says, it's like saying people who can speak French well have a very dexterous tongue. It's the wrong place to assign credit. And I think that's the most important thing that I got out of your book was the muscles and the body are a result of what's going on in the brain. And that's really what you're, you're trying to get across and, and what you were describing there. So can you can you tell us a little bit more about what your research showed to prove that it really is what's in the brain as opposed to the physical side of it? Yeah, I mean, well, listen, I mean, we have we have artificial intelligence right now that can produce artistic expression that can draw pictures based off a text that we plug into a computer, right? We have computers that can beat us in chess and in jeopardy, and we have cars that can drive us around, you know, drones on, on the battlefield. But have you ever seen a robot try to unscrew a bottle of water? <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it's, it's not pretty. And so ro roboticists today are struggling to produce even the most basic functions of human movement. And, and, and it's a, it's a very complicated system and a wondrous system, but it's very complicated. And it's, it's why that I argue in the book that those uh, among us who are particularly adept at skilled movement, someone like a LeBron James or a Tom Brady are really geniuses. I mean, they are using their brains in extraordinary and an extraordinary level in ways that challenge their decision-making, their processing, their understanding of what's going on at various different levels, their memory. And so if it was, you know, to, to get back to your question, Matt, if it, if it was all about the muscles or the physical attributes, we'd never have an athlete like a Steph Curry, right? Who, if you were to line up Steph Curry's attributes against 200 other guards in the NBA, you'd never pick him out of a lineup. And so the question that was thrown at me that I didn't really have an answer to, and I don't think many people do at this point, is, is, you know, what is it that Steph Curry is really actually good at? You know, what does it mean to say that he's skilled? What does that actually mean? And I think, you know, the sports industry uh, in particular has not really grappled with this question uh, or, or, or tried, to, tried to grapple with this question because it involves very difficult assessments beyond just how an athlete, how fast an athlete runs or how, how high he jumps. Um, you know, those are the, those are the metrics that they tend to focus on and because they're easily, easily measurable. I don't think that that tells you very much about what sort of athlete they're, they're going to become. So in your opener, you mentioned the company DeServo, what they're trying to do with the EEG headsets. And you, um, you know, mentioned what they had done with, with Columbia. In the Army, you know, we're, we're trying to do some of the same assessments of what soldier is. And I'll use skilled in quotes because, as we talked about, you know, what, what really defines skill. Um, but we're trying to assess soldiers. 
What is DeServo doing in that sense? Are they able to kind of identify athletes who are more skilled and athletes who are less skilled? Have they been successful at that? Is that something that is strictly a sports thing? Could that be translated into other industries like the military? Yeah. So, you know, my my book is a few years old at this point. I'll say that as a first caveat, right? Um, When I was writing about DeServo, it was 2015 up and through 2018. So things have changed. Um, But what what they were doing at at the time was they were using EEG, you know, which I I said before, it, it is a way of measuring uh, brain activations. The gold standard for neuroscience today is the functional MRI. It's an fMRI. Um, this is a device that gives researchers a clearer look at the way neurons are signaling in the brain. The problem with the functional MRI is anybody who has ever been in an MRI machine knows is you can't move. Um, you have to stay perfectly still. That makes it very hard for movement research to be done using an, an MRI. So, the, you know, the EEG is kind of, you know, it averts some of that issue, although you still have to, while you're wearing the headset, you still have to stay mainly sedate. You know, the, the testing that I saw with the Cerebo and the, and the, and the minor league um, baseball hitters, you know, they were wearing the headset with electrodes on, on various points around their skull. Um, they were sitting at a, at a laptop screen, watching the simulation and, and tapping a keyboard. It certainly was not perfect um, and, uh, and, and not a perfect representation of what they, what they experienced in the batter's box. I mean, hopefully uh, soon at some day in the future, there will be a brain monitoring piece of equipment that, will, that hitters can wear while they're, while they're taking batting practice without the noise and the, and the data effects that are problematic from that sort of activity. But we're just not there yet. Hopefully we're moving in that direction. But I focused on DeCervo not because I thought that their approach was perfect, but because at the time they were really the only ones that were interested in exploring, um, you know, the, the actual neuroscience of expertise. Since the book came out, they have branched into other other sports. Uh, I believe they've also done some law enforcement cases, um, some decision-making among law enforcement. I know they've been working with umpires and referees. You just, you know, you have to find ways to simplify uh, the data that you're trying to analyze. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and baseball really is the best place to do this because the events are so discreet. And it's, even though it's a team sport, it's really individual against individual in, in these specific events. And each individual's action is not necessarily dependent on another on the team like it would be in basketball or football. So according to the book, nerve speed, relatively speaking, is, is slow. It's around t- 224 miles per hour and it's inflexible. And I thought one of the most interesting stories from that book was uh, you talked about a few major leaguers. One was a Hall of Famer in Mike Piazza. The other is a future Hall of Famer, you know, five years after he retires this year in Albert Pujols. And then another close to Hall of Famer in Brian Giles, who I think a lot of people slept on. He's kind of in that Bobby Abreu close to Hall of Fame, but I don't think people knew how good he was. Right. (laughs) They're trying to hit a softball from Jenny Finch and they fail at it. I think she strikes each of them out on maybe, you know, three pitches apiece. It's it's thrown underhand. It's the equivalent of a 95 mile per hour fastball, which most of them made their careers on hitting out of the park. But the delivery was different and it was a different way to approach hitting. Um, Can you tell us why they had so much trouble hitting a 95 mile an hour pitch because it was thrown differently? Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that baseball hitting a baseball is not a reflex, right? It's, It's a voluntary decision that's that's initiated by your brain to to your muscles. 
it's also not a reaction. A 95 mile an hour fastball takes about four tenths of a second to reach home plate. It takes about two tenths, about half that time for the signal to travel from your brain to your muscles to sway. So that leaves two tenths of a second to decide on whether or not the hitter wants to swing or not swing at this pitch. That's half, that's, that's less than it takes the time it takes to blink your eye. It's not a lot of time, you know, and that, that doesn't even account for the length of a pitcher's stride or the type of movement on the pitch that they're applying or, you know, the external uh, stimulations that are occurring, the crowd noise, the pressure, how many beers you had the night before, <laughs> you know, all those things will, will impact uh, your quote unquote reaction time. So if you're just standing at the box, flat-footed, waiting for whatever looks good to swing at, at 95 miles an hour, you're just not going to hit it, right? You're never going to catch up to that, maybe once in a blue moon, but certainly not consistently, okay? So how do hitters do it? They're using prediction. Um, They're picking up on very subtle cues uh, that take years and years of practice and expertise and have told them this is what they should be expecting in this situation. Um, They're picking these cues up in the pitcher's windup, in his release point, the ball's rotation, uh, you know, right out of the pitcher's hands. Now, how do we know this? We know this because in those moments when the prediction mechanism breaks down or falters, the results are not pretty. That's what happened with the softball situation, right? As you mentioned, Jenny Finch, this has happened around 2004, I think it was. Um, They did a celebrity softball game. Um, Jenny Finch uh, was throwing, you know, hard, but as you said, nothing that Albert Pujols could not regularly handle. And, uh, and they couldn't even get the bat off their shoulders. And because their predict their entire mechanism for predicting where the ball was coming out of the pitcher's hands, uh, the release point, the ball, that what sort of spin was, was the ball displaying in those moments as it leaves the pitcher's hands, they were completely disrupted by the angle of her pitch. They had never seen that before and they didn't know how to handle it. This is a good reason to, um, in, to underscore that when you're practicing intentionally, in anything that you do, fidelity to the actual performance is paramount, okay? Your brain needs reps to visualize what it's going to expect, uh, to imprint that visualization, to come up with a motor plan of action, and to be able to respond when called upon. There's a danger in being a little bit too overprescribed or being too regimented and uh, you know, leaning too heavily on, on habit. Uh, You still want to leave a little wiggle room for improvisation and creativity, but your brain is very good at conjecturing what it should do based on what's already unfolded. And the more you can practice that, the better. It's why I think that batting practice in baseball is the biggest waste, uh, useless exercise in sports because, you know, these are professional hitters and they're standing up there getting soft toss at 80 miles an hour it's maybe helpful for, for warming up their, their muscles a a little bit, but it's mostly just a waste of time and energy. It's not actually preparing them for what they're going to be facing in their at bats. You know, the other thing is you have to keep at it. There's something special. I wrote about this in the book. There's something special about active expertise. It's, it's a little mysterious. Researchers aren't quite sure what exactly it is, but the evidence 
sort of bears it out that there's just something something about active experience, active expertise that gives performers, athletes uh, a, a certain edge. Uh, there was a great study a few years ago uh, out of Italy in which uh, they showed a uh, clip of a, of a basketball player playing shooting free throws. They videotaped this basketball player shooting free throws and they zoomed way in to the fingertips as the player was releasing the ball, right? And they stopped the footage as soon as the ball leaves the fingertips, the moment the ball leaves the fingertips. And they showed this clip to uh, a number of professional basketball players that were playing in Italy. And they also showed the clip to, um, to various coaches and ex-players uh, and, and trainers and, and so on around the team. The active players, the current professional players, were far and away better at predicting whether or not the ball was going to go into the hoop than the coaches, the trainers, and even the, the former players. And so that was an indication that there's just something, something about your active experience, your active expertise that's giving some, your prediction mechanism some sort of edge. Um, and so that might be why they're, they're performing better on, on the field or on the court. I, I just, I find that story so, so fascinating and interesting. And I think the point about it's, it's essentially what I say to my little league team all the time is practice the way you play, but really, you know, the, the point you made about practicing how it's going to be in, in real world conditions and that fidelity is so important. I think that has implications here for us in the army, especially at the training and doctrine command on the way that we train our soldiers um, you know, we have to make it as realistic as possible and put them up against real world uh, dilemmas. I want to talk a little bit about neuroplasticity now. Now, we've explored that in Mad Scientist before. We've had some some experts in years past uh, bring up neuroplasticity. You bring it up in your book. What did your research show about neuroplasticity as it relates to athletic performance? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that neuroplasticity is much more active when you're younger, right? I mean, I think that's, that's kind of uh, what, what we, the main thing that we, that we know um, your brain is much more pliable uh, when you're, when you're younger and when you're developing. I mean, I think it's why it's easier to learn a language when you're a kid. Uh, this, the re, the, you know, and it's the same reason why it's easier to learn a, to ride a bike actually when you're, when you're a kid, you know, it's not to say that it's impossible when you're older, it's just harder. From an athlete perspective, you know, I think athletes sort of understand neuroplasticity more implicitly. I think there's a there's an understanding there that, you know, it takes a lot of practice, right? The 10,000 hours rule to develop the types of procedural habits and be able to, you know, adequately perform the tasks that you need to, you know, without consciously thinking about it. You know, the athletes might not realize that your brain is is actually changing as that practice is occurring. But I think athletes understand that, that you need a lot of practice in order to be able to do what you're doing well. You know, where I think the brain plasticity aspect is being a little neglected is actually a more on a day-to-day timeline than on a month to years. Uh, I'm not, not suggesting that neuroplasticity is occurring that rapidly, but you know, one question that I considered for the book uh, and, and wrote about was this question of why why do we have to warm up? If we were just robots, we could just put on a turn a button and, and start immediately. Certainly, there's an aspect of, of the need to warm up the muscles to avoid injury. Uh, but studies have shown that you can pretty adequately, you know, put heating pads on in the locker room before a match and, you know, get the same functionality of warming up your muscles without having to, you know, and avoid injury without having to exert yourself and, and uh, fatigue yourself with a, with a rigorous warm up. 
So, you know, what exactly is the warm up doing? <laughs> Obviously, I'm here to talk about it. It's, it's for the brain. What's interesting that is is that the, you know, in the days and even hours between performances, you know, your brain's been doing a lot of other things, right? It needs a few minutes to essentially recalibrate itself and say this is the task that okay, this is the task you want me to do. You know, when you're warming up, actively thinking about what you're trying to warm up for. Uh, visualizing what you might be expecting can actually speed up the process a little bit. You know, that can even occur when you're sitting on the bench. I mean, why do we have rust? What is this? What does it mean to be rusty after going through a full warm up? Then the coach says, sit on the bench for a few minutes and, you know, you're sitting there and then you, you know, you, you get called in and what happens? You missed your few, first few shots and everybody in sports just kind of passes that off as rust. Why? <laughs> you know? And the re again, the reason is because while you're sitting on the bench, maybe your focus was drifting, you're thinking about other things, you're not actively engaged in the game. It doesn't have to do with the, how warm your, your muscles are. It, it has to do with how warm your brain is, right? And so it's helpful to remember that your brain is not just there for sports or for combat, right? It's there for, for a lot of other things. It's in charge and responsible for doing a lot of other things. And so if you want it to perform at a high level in certain circumstances, sometimes it just needs a little kickstart. That's very interesting because you can actually see that in what's called the pinch hitter penalty. So baseball players who come into pinch hit will perform worse than their career numbers would indicate versus if they started the game. So you can actually see that in the data. Um, I want to talk again about uh, John Krakauer. So he noted that motor skills are just as cognitively challenging as brain teasers and crossword puzzles. So from your research, are there best ways to train the brain to achieve better results with motor skills? What, what could we be doing better? And I know we talked about, you know, replicating, you know, real world conditions or anything else we could be doing. Yeah. So, you know, one of the more practical bits of, of advice that, that I came across in, in the research for this book came from a guy who uh, lived about a hundred years ago, actually. Uh, his name was Nikolai Bernstein. He was a, he was a Russian physiologist and, um, he, he said this phrase, repetition without repetition. So he, he came up with this uh, while actually watching um, blacksmiths uh, hammering steel. And he's watching, watching them do their work. And he's, he's uh, realizing that the way that they are bringing the hammer up and bringing the hammer down varied. You know, they, they never brought it up and down in the same way. And yet they consistently struck the steel in the same place every time. What he surmised from that is that physiologically speaking, movement is inherently variable. Physically, we cannot make the same movement the same way twice. There's noise in the signals of the activations, and you know, countless variables are minutely, very subtly adjusting our movements, but it's 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 such that the same movement can can occur the same way twice in a row. What we're looking to do when we're moving in anything, but particularly in skilled movement, we're looking to produce consistent motor outcomes, right? We want to strike the steel in the same place the same way each time, but the way to get there might vary. Now, I think sometimes in coaching and in training, uh, we prescribe very precise motor patterns to fit certain techniques or the way coaches think that things should look. 
maybe that's the way they were taught or the way that they think it looks right. The better approach is understanding the constraints of the task and working within those constraints. Overprescribing is, is kind of a recipe, I think, for failure. Think about how you learn to run, okay? You were not taught or told, lift your foot up to this point, bend your knee at the, this angle, move your hips in this direction, arch your foot there. No, you learned by trial and error. You learn by handling, by understanding the parameters of the task and working within those parameters. Coaches, I think, have a tendency and trainers, and they have a tendency to overstress the process rather than focusing on the outcome. What that can do is restrain movement variability. It can restrain creativity, and it can actually form bad habits that ultimately will intrude upon your natural skill. You know, I see this a lot in youth coaching, uh, like tennis uh, or, or uh, you know, shooting a basketball. Um, you know, coaches want the, the young players to follow exactly the same motor patterns each time with each serve, rather than focusing on the, the outcome and the best way for that individual player to achieve that outcome. You know, it's interesting because basketball coaches, you know, shooting coaches will tell you that Steph Curry's jump shot is not perfect. It's actually not the way that they would coach, that they would train somebody to shoot but it, it works for him, right? He's pretty darn good. So tailoring more toward the individual and the inherent movement variability of the individual, I think will lead to more consistent and better, better outcomes rather than trying to fit each person, each player into the same pattern just because you were taught that or, or you think that's the way it should look. So aside from the DeServo technology that we talked about that they're using with EEG headsets, have you seen any other emerging tech that maybe didn't make it into your book or you've seen since you wrote the book, um, but that, that maybe teams are experimenting with? Well, you know, I, I said before, the book the book's a few years old now. So there, there probably are a lot of emerging technologies that I'm, that I'm not uh, too aware of or, or, you know, that I should be learning about. Um, so I assume, I assume that there, there's a lot going on. I will say that the thing that I've noticed more and more in sports is the, um, is the inclusion of VR, virtual reality. Uh, that, that seems to have gone much more mainstream in, in sports. In fact, a lot of colleges today have fully immersive VR rooms for their, for their athletes. I've, I've seen this before. And, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a pretty big advancement. I wouldn't say it's perfect. I think you're still missing, you know, the sensory element of uh, and the tactile element of, of feeling how the football feels come being released from your fingertips is, is an important element to actually authentically, you know, replicating what you're trying to do. But being fully immersed visually in, you know, what, whatever task you you want, I think is is definitely a step in in the in the right direction and, and probably pretty pretty beneficial as i said fidelity to the to the task that uh, is is paramount and so as long as the vr uh, is putting putting the athletes or the performers or the combatants in in scenarios that are authentic to what they might expect i think you can your brain can uh, really practice building up that prediction mechanism pretty effectively again not perfectly still missing missing the sensory element which i think is important and maybe that'll come in time but, but pretty close. Yeah, that's good to hear. I think, you know, there's a lot of talk in the army about virtual reality as well as augmented reality. Um, and a lot of the futuring work we're doing is envisioning, uh, you know, a future where army soldiers are training in a, in a virtual space 
you know, distributed, working with others across the globe. Um, so that's that's good because we kind of, you know, we, we try to mirror, uh, you know, what emerging tech is coming out in industry um, and to, you know, to see that is good for us. So, Zach, those are the questions we had for you. We're going to skip now over to um, what we call our rapid fire session here. So we have the, the same questions for all of our guests. Um, we'll, we'll start with the first one here. What's a trend or technology that keeps you up at night? Yeah, I, well, I wouldn't say keeps me, keeps me up at night, but, uh, I, I, I'm become, I, you probably tell from my answers a little bit there, you know, I've become more interested in the sensory, uh, element to sports and performance. Uh, I think it's a fairly underrepresented, under, underappreciated element to how we move. I think we're starting to get a little bit more appreciation with advancements in, in these digital realms and, and VR and, the, you know, the metaverse, right? And, um, you know, people who are in the metaverse are finding it very rich uh, visually, but, but lacking from the, the sensory perspective. And just in that sense, it just doesn't feel quite right. And so I know there are companies that are trying to apply more of that touch and tactile sensation into uh into vr um so i think in that vein i'm interested in ways that sports teams uh and and other um performance groups are are trying to figure out how to add that sensory element i think that'll be that'll be really interesting uh and so i look forward to following that um and hopefully there's some there's some cool developments there our second question is what's something about you that most people might not know that you're willing to share to our listeners. <laughs> you know, my mom, not about me, but my mom works for Joan Jett in the Black Arts, um, the legendary uh, rock rock icon. So kind of unusual. I've, I've been going to Joan, to Black Art shows since I was an infant. <laughs> and uh, I am, um, you know, I'm a big, big fan of, of, uh, of Joan Jett. That's awesome. That's a, that's a really cool story. We don't get a lot like this. Yep. Yep. So the, the last question, I'm going to do a two-parter. The The normal question we ask everybody is, what's your favorite movie? So we'll start with that one. Yeah, so uh, this, is, this is easier for me because I, I love movies. But, um, well, I think the perfect movie is Jurassic Park. I think that Jurassic Park is a perfect movie. But I think my favorite movie is The Departed by Scorsese. Yeah. Those are two good ones. I know The Departed is one of, of Luke's favorite movies. Uh, and and uh -huh. I, I love it as well. But Jurassic Park is up there on my short list. Uh, yeah. I absolutely love that movie. Yeah. So... To, to go with the sports theme, though, I mean, I was going to ask you, what's your who's your favorite sports figure? Um, you know, I, I grew up a Yankee fan um, I, and I grew up in the time of the Yankees, uh, you know, dominating. So I got to say Jeter. Jeter's my guy. Love. I love Jeter. I always, always have. So um, I know that's a little cliche in the New York area, but uh, I have a soft spot for Jeter. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, that, that, that makes perfect sense. That's awesome stuff. Zach, I want to thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to us. We really appreciate when folks from outside of the Army come in and, and tell us, you know, talk to us about all these cool things that are happening, uh, especially in sports, because, you know, just because we all work for the Army doesn't mean we're not human beings. We're all big sports fans, and we're always appreciative when we can learn from what sports are doing, because sports is just a, you know, a natural analogy to, you know, the types of people that we have here as soldiers, you know, those those performance athletes. So once again, thanks for coming on and talking about your book, The Performance Cortex, How Neuroscience is Redefining Athletic Genius, you know, for teaching us about what you learned and, you know, for being a guest on the podcast today. Well, I appreciate it. It was, it was great talking to you, Matt. And uh, hopefully I um, was somewhat informative and helpful for, for your listeners. You got a great show. So um, thanks. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. 
I'd like to thank our guest, Zach Schoenbrunn, author of The Performance Cortex, How Neuroscience is Redefining Athletic Genius. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience. 